0: We're slowly getting reports back from Northeast Ohioans with ties to the hurricane-ravaged areas of Florida, and it's one of the stories we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. It's a Thursday. We always have good stuff to talk about on Thursdays. Let's get going. Reporter Sabrina Eaton takes a look at Dave Joyce's latest re-election battle in a year when the lines of his district have shifted a good bit. Lisa, what did she learn? Does Joyce have anything to worry about?
1: I'm not sure that he does uh, because he probably dropped. I used to be in his old district, the the seventh, and I'm in Cuyahoga County. But when they redrew it, it's now the 14th district, and it's basically moved east and south. So they got rid of Summit and Cuyahoga County people, and uh, they gained parts of Portage and Trumbull, larger portions of that. Also, Ashtabula and Geoghegan Lake are counties are totally within this new district. Now, Joyce has a huge fundraising advantage. He's raised nearly $2 million for his campaign. His opponent, Democrat Matthew Kilboy of uh, Deerfield Township, has only raised $52,000 so far. Kilboy is a retired U.S. Navy nurse. He is openly gay. Um, and then we talked, you know, Sabrina talked to them about various different election issues. The biggest one on voters' minds that we know from several polls is inflation. Uh, Mr. Kilboy says he wants to shore up the supply chain and make more products domestically and break up consolidated companies. He feels like these are, are you know, uh, contributing to inflation. Dave Joyce says that he supports uh, re- uh, Republican Kevin McCarthy's commitment to America, which is kind of a revamped version of Newt Gingrich's contract with America. So that means lean and mean government, not giving money away, whatever that means, and energy independence. And looking at energy, as we know that our gas prices may go up because of the OPEC Plus decision yesterday, Dave Joyce says that President Biden has tried to kill fossil fuels, and he wants to maximize production of cleaner natural gas. Matt Kilboy says we really need to diversify our portfolio of non-fossil fuels, and that includes hydrogen and nuclear energy. So they pretty much diverged on all topics student debt. Matthew Kilboy says, I have student debt myself. He says it can certainly help low income people escape the debt cycle, but he's worried about the burden it would place on middle-class taxpayers. Um, He says they do need to address high tuition and predatory lending. Now, Joy says that student debt forgiveness is completely wrong. He hopes that the Supreme Court overturns it and he calls it Biden's debt transfer plan of up to $600 billion. So they pretty much diverged on most of the biggest topics that I think are on voters' minds in November.
0: We're going to be reporting next week on a new poll that's coming out that deals with many interesting topics, including student debt. I think we might all be surprised. Lisa, Dave Joyce has always been considered kind of the friendly guy. He doesn't come across as a staunch Donald Trump guy. He's I wouldn't say he's middle of the road. He's a conservative Republican, but he's the kind of guy people like as a neighbor. So it's hard to dislodge an incumbent who is a guy people wouldn't mind having a beer with, right?
1: Right, right. And he has been kind of common sense as far as Ohio Republicans go. You know, he is part of the Cannabis Caucus. He is a former prosecutor who saw the damage that was done by people who were just, you know, smoking recreational marijuana, had their lives ruined by arrests. So, you know, he was kind of behind the push for legalizing marijuana. So, and actually, when I was in his district, I voted for him the last time. So...
0: Yeah. he's. I, I think it'll be very hard. The, and you're right. The, the adjustment of the lines don't make much of a difference. He's, I think, in a pretty strong position. It's a good story by Sabrina. It's on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Few national stories have been as hard to read about as the devastation parts of Florida suffered from Hurricane Ian. And the parts hardest hit are popular winter homes for quite a few people native to Northeast Ohio. Laura, right, we did a story looking at this, saw some dramatic numbers. What did we learn?
2: Yeah, property records in Lee County, uh, where Fort Myers, Sanibel, and I think Cape Coral are, show about 3,000 people still listing Ohio as their primary address. Um, and there's uh, Florida is full of Ohioans, basically. 542,000 Ohio natives live full-time in Florida. From 2019 to 2020 alone, 24,000 people moved from Ohio to Florida, And when you look at Lee County specifically, you know, among the hardest hit of the hurricane, there are primary addresses, you know, 46 with Medina, 44 from Chagrin Falls, 38 from Strongsville and Westlake and 34 from Hudson. So it is a popular place to retire from Ohio, to have a second home. And uh, yeah, those people, we had some reporters reach out to them and see how they were doing.
0: Yeah. And the the people we talked to didn't seem to have suffered the worst devastation. When you look at the video, there's some time-lapse videos up now where it just shows buildings wash, literally washing away in the big uh, surges, especially on, on the Fort Myers beach. Uh, and we're still looking to talk to more with so many people owning property down there. I, I suspect that a lot of them probably don't know yet how bad things are because communication remains a pretty serious problem.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing; is it happened in late September. A lot of times, snowbirds don't head down till winter time, like after things or after Thanksgiving, after Christmas. So, I think there'll be people that don't go down this, you know, or only going to it down to assess the damage and won't be able to use their places.
0: And I lived in in Florida for nine years, so it's not a surprise to me that a lot of Ohioans lived there. I'm going to offend everybody who's listening. They were all the bad drivers. You knew if you were in a traffic jam, (laughs) it was an Ohio license plate at the front of it. The the problem they're facing, because every time a storm came through, this happened. There's a huge demand for contractors. You know, you yeah. and you and Layla know what that's like in normal times, but can you imagine if every house in your neighborhood needed a contractor? And so you get a lot of fly by night outfits that don't do good work. It's very, very hard to get quality people to come in and do the repairs. And you're you're in trouble because if your home has been punctured or has holes in it where the weather is coming in, you're kind of in an emergency situation. So we're hoping to hear for more uh, if if you have any any information about property down there belonging to Ohioans, send us a note. We'd love to, to hear yeah. about it.
2: I, I wanted to add that Susan Glazer, our travel writer, wrote a really heartwarming, well, heart aching piece, actually, about Sanibel Island and her family ties to that. And she was last wrote a travel piece in January. And so she says she can't wait to walk the beaches of Sanibel again, um, but she doesn't know when that will be. And I feel like a lot of people are probably feeling the same way.
0: I know, but you always wonder why we build on these Mm -hmm. islands? That's a very good question. They're barrier islands. They're always going to get buffeted at some point. And is it wise to continue to put houses on them? Should they just be parks that you visit and then you don't have all of this uh, damage? There was an interesting story I read out of Florida where pretty much any building since 2007 withstood it because they greatly improved their building codes after 2007 and so the houses are much more hurricane proof and one of the people we talked to in the story talked about mm-hmm. his condo is
2: hurricane largely, proof right yeah. like, it's like earthquake proof like is it really or fireproof I, I but there have been a lot of substantial and you know improvements in building
0: yeah and the buildings that are still standing are largely the uh, the newer ones it's today in ohio what have we learned so far about how Cleveland might be using delay tactics to hold on to income tax refunds as long as possible, collecting interest on it? Layla, I think there should be a law that whatever date this year, people get their refunds. That's the date next year where, if they owe them any money, they have to pay by. Forget <laughs> April fifteenth. If they're holding our money till November, we shouldn't have to give them anything till next November. I love
3: that. That's a that's a great policy, um, Chris. I, I know you had received one of these shady letters from Cleveland Central Collections Agency insisting that you hadn't sent in your w-2s and other forms that needed to process your income tax refund so (laughs) so so you had put out a call to readers on subtext asking to hear from others and we did hear from others there were remote workers who told us that they were experiencing the same thing they had gotten letters telling them to provide documentation that they had already submitted and if they didn't su- send in those records within 30 days uh, they are, their refund could be denied is what CCA had told them Income tax administrator Kevin Preslin told Courtney Astolfi that's not common but it is happening to people and after her story ran yesterday uh, Courtney actually told me that she heard from one person who said that they work for Cleveland schools and that this person said a number of this of their colleagues and themselves, had received these letters, <laughs> so we're talking about city workers who are receiving these letters as well. Um, so CCA couldn't quantify for us how many of those of letters requests. I know, right? Likely story. They, they, um, you know, they said they don't keep that that data. So yeah. we definitely mm. want to hear from listeners who have gotten one of these letters despite having already sent in all the documentation. So if you're in this boat please reach out to Courtney Astolfi. You can reach her at C-A-S-T-O-L-F-I at cleveland.com. Preslin had said that CCA might be requesting more info from people because you know, documentation provided by employers didn't include all the info that they needed. And he, yeah, yeah, they're
0: they're making this up. Look, we heard from, you know, yeah, you want to say, well, Chris Quinn, you can say you sent your stuff in, but, but you probably didn't. Okay. I did, but it doesn't matter. We're hearing from accountants whose business it is to provide these records. <laughs> yeah, right. And they're saying they're getting the letters. And they're like, you know, I'm a CPA. I don't make that mistake because I wouldn't have a job if I did. This is a, look, this is a shameful performance by the Justin Bibb administration. Instead of doing the service they're supposed to do, they're holding on to the money as long as they can. And we got more stories coming on this. Yeah, we do. I was talking to somebody this week who was really worried about downtown not coming back. We're going to do some stories on this. But but it's not coming back. And I was talking about, you know, workers don't want to come back. They don't want to deal with this. Their money is it's October. This money was collected in 2020, 2021 and they still don't have it back. And many of them had to pay extra taxes to their home municipalities that they're now in the gap. This is this is Poor service by Justin Bibb. We talked to him about it. What three weeks ago, two weeks ago, and he said, "Oh, I'll I'll look into that. We'll get on that." Nothing has happened so far, and people still don't have their money.
3: Right, right, yeah. And in fact, uh, you know, they promised us a uh, a meeting with our editorial board, and we are still waiting for that as well.
0: They ghosted us completely after that. We we actually gave them the benefit of the doubt, and finally, I think after two weeks went by, it's like you know, let's write the story. We're not going to wait for this nonsense, but. The, the, the other agency that does this, Rita, has none of these issues. I mean, you deal with Rita. It's efficient. It's easy. One of our colleagues finally got his Cleveland refund last week, and he reached out to Rita to say, okay, I got my refund. You told me back when I filed my return. Wait until you get your refund, and then you can pay the difference. And and he got in touch with them, and they immediately responded. They sent him the bill for what his taxes are in his home city, and he paid them. Went like clockwork. The CCA run by the city, like almost everything run by City Hall, nightmare to deal with. Mm -hmm. All right. Please send the notes. See Astolfi at Cleveland.com. We want to hear from you. It's Today in Ohio. We've talked about some sports books coming to the pro teams in Cleveland, but the places where most people gamble in Northeast Ohio now are also getting into sports betting. Lisa, where do they stand?
1: Oh, they are ready to go and they're going to be ready even before sports betting becomes legal on January 1st. So Jack Entertainment is chomping at the bit here. They're building casino style lounges at both their downtown Jack Casino and the Thistledown Racino locations. They're going to open by November 26th, just in time for the Ohio State-Michigan game even though, like I said, sports betting is not legal till January 1st, but they want to give people a taste of what's to come, I guess. So Jack Entertainment has two of the five, you know, brick and mortar sports books in Cuyahoga County, uh, along with the Browns, the Guardians, and the Cavaliers. And then MGM Norfield in Summit County also will be building out a sports book there. So uh, Jack Entertainment's vice president of design and construction, Gino Del Pup, said they won an exciting Las Vegas-like atmosphere atmosphere and they're already building this out they have a temporary wall and they're they're building like crazy so in the downtown location it's going to be 6000 square feet on the first floor near the prospect avenue entrance Entrance. They'll have 45 like recliners with built in phone chargers. They'll have betting kiosks. They'll have five betting windows. They'll have also table games and slot machines in the area. There will be seating for 99 people in the uh, downtown one. In Thistledown, slightly smaller. It's going to be forty-two hundred square feet with seventy-six seats, twenty-eight of them the theater-style recliners. But they won't have table games; only slots. Um, so, yeah, they're you know they want to invite people in. They can't bet, but they at least they'll get a good look at it. Big video walls in both locations, and they're now hiring. So, if you're looking for a job, uh, you can ring them up.
0: This is an interesting, uh, almost David versus Goliath battle because there are five or six big national sports books, FanDuel and those, Uh, and we're actually working with a partner. We get some revenue if people go through our site to to sign up for these things. And you just wonder, will people use the apps for these major companies that, you know, advertise on every football game, or will they go for an experience like you're talking about, this Las Vegas-like experience where you sit and have a drink and you're watching the games and checking out where your bets are going. It's hard, it's hard to tell, but a lot of money's being invested in it.
1: Yeah. And I, but I think people do want that experience, you know, and they want to be with other fans. You know, there's nothing like being in a bar when there's a football game on, you know, people get excited, you get excited, but you know, a Jack has got their hands in, uh, you know, mobile betting. They have the bet Jack app, which is up and running for training purposes only. So they're covering all their bases.
0: Yeah, they're all trying to register as many people now so they can hit them up January 1st and say, "Hey, it's legal now. Bet, 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 spend some money." So we'll have to we'll have to check these things out when they're up and running to see what kind of business they're doing. It's today in Ohio. How much will a Cleveland construction company pay for its negligence in a road paving contract that led to the death of a worker? Laura, this is a horrifying accident that occurred here and the company really did a did put the worker into jeopardy.
2: This is really sad. It's a $17 million jury assessment in favor of his estate um, that the man's widow, uh, Shelly Solers filed this wrongful death lawsuit against a construction company called perk. And the case went to trial. So that that's what they decided. If you remember this case, this was 2019, um, subcontractor David Solers was struck in a lane that should have been blocked off with orange barrels by the project construct- contractor. That was perk. They were responsible for the work zone safety. This was 3am on Cedar road. He was working as a painter during a resurfacing and repaving project. And the stuff that was supposed to protect him was off to the side on the sidewalk. He died leaving behind a wife and three children. And to make the story even more, More intriguing and and sad, the motorist who struck him, Wiley Bridgman, was originally named as a co defendant in this case, but he had just spent 37 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit, and then he was released in 2014. He has since died.
0: the The idea that you had a painter on the road without traffic cones at three in the morning, yeah, I just that, and it's very dark. It's hard to see. And if you're driving through a construction zone, you kind of rely on those cones to tell you where the zone is. Uh, it, it's just horrifying. It's uh, it, and the price they're going to pay is, is is very very high. Um, it, uh, I mean, uh, you would hope that this would be a, a warning to anybody in the construction business to make sure they do the safety elements. Yeah, it's absolutely. T- it's today in Ohio. We have not talked about "Say Yes to Education" in quite a while, but Hannah Drown and Cameron Fields, including a look at it, as part of the continuing series called "Cleveland's Promise." Layla, well, this is, of course, the the program that makes sure every kid who wants to, who graduates from a Cleveland high school, gets to go to college. Where does it stand?
3: Yeah, you know, I think Eric Gordon's final State of the School speech a couple of weeks back will always be remembered for that response that he gave to that young student who asked about the future of Say Yes to Education once he leaves the district. When he pointed to other Say Yes school districts like Buffalo, where all these new superintendents had floated the idea of killing that scholarship program, and he concluded by saying, Say Yes is still there. They are not. And (laughs) that really does get at the essence of how powerful and important this program has become, which grants full scholarships to CMSD graduates for all public colleges, universities, and Pell-eligible job training programs in the state and more than 100 private institutions nationwide. But just as importantly, Say Yes provides wraparound services at CMSD schools, from social services to basic needs like deodorant and clothing, services that that really begin to alleviate the burdens that poverty creates so kids can really focus on on making school their full-time job from, from the very earliest years In the district so so that by the time they're in high school these students are ready for the next step because you know like gordon says they've had someone blocking and tackling for them all those years so say yes cleveland is one of only four of its kind in the nation gordon has managed to attract 95 million dollars in investment for it as of this past spring more than 1300 students have enrolled in college or career training programs because of say yes cleveland And nearly 80 students have totally completed their studies and graduated from those programs. Mm -hmm. And we expect those numbers to rise given that CMSD's graduation rates have jumped nearly 30% since 2011. And we've seen a 72% increase in high-quality preschool enrollment since 2013, which really sets the stage for success even further into the future. So everything is, is really humming along nicely for this really incredible program.
0: Well, and what Gordon said has some relevance. He pointed out that in Buffalo, they had CEOs come in that wanted to get rid of Say Yes, which is mind boggling. Why would anybody want to get rid of Say Yes? But CEOs often have egos. And if they weren't the one to bring it in, then it's not something they can take credit for. They might want to get rid of it. I wonder whether we're at such a juncture. We've reported on the very odd behavior by Mayor Justin Bibb with regard to Gordon. He never had a conversation about the future of education in Cleveland, and Gordon finally read the writing on the wall and decided he would leave at the end of the school year. You worry that because Bibb wasn't involved in bringing Say Yes to Education, that he'll be like the people in Buffalo that weren't committed to it. And whoever he points to CEO won't be committed to it. You hope Gordon is right when he tells the students they're all gone, say yes is still here. <laughs> well I'll
3: tell you what, Justin Bibb had the front row seat to that speech. And I kind of read Eric Gordon's comment as the shot across the bow <laughs> in defense of say yes. And um I think that, that will that will echo for a while. Um, I mean, it is incredibly powerful and 95 million or $95 million in private investment. I mean, that is, that's, that's out of this world
2: support for this.
3: I also wonder if it could be used as
2: an economic development tool to get people to move into Cleveland because, you know, you, you go to four years of a CMSD high school and they have some incredible programs. Like the same students stood up and talked about their robotics you know, club that they have at these schools, and then you go to school for free anywhere in the state of Ohio to a public school. You go to Ohio State, you go to Miami. I mean, it's enough to make you think I could move into the city. I know, you actually, know. it had. I had that it, thought.
3: It got my wheels turning too when I started thinking about Edgewater it. Edgewater
2: looks like a lovely neighborhood.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'll tell you I mean it really i mean they there are they absolutely should should leverage that and and as a he, they should make this a huge campaign to get i come coming you. back into the city
0: yeah. but there's weirdness here there's real weirdness between bib and education there are people that are greatly fearing that he's going to shift city resources much more in the charter schools that's and, true and he and the problem is he's not speaking I mean all we know is he never had the conversation about education with Eric Gordon. And even if he wants to replace Eric Gordon, you want to pick the guy's brain. He's been running things for a decade. So I, it, I, I, you, don't, you normally wouldn't think anything of it. You would think, why would anybody want to get rid of Say Yes to Education? But because of the weirdness we're seeing, this is my. This might be something that needs a campaign. Do you think to... he
3: planted that question in the audience? No, yeah. <laughs> I
2: doubt that. I joking. highly do.
3: But but I, I the ninety five million should last a while though. I can't remember exactly how many years that will stretch. But I we we've I mean he's got it covered for some time.
0: Yeah, let's hope. It's today in Ohio. The former Kirtland police chief received some attention when he was fired because the town accused him of controversial behavior, to say the least. We now have his formal response in a civil suit. Lisa, what does he contend?
1: This is quite the soap opera over there in Kirtland. So uh, former Kirtland police chief Lance Nassi was fired last year for several allegations, and he filed a suit this week against the city of Kirtland. It's Mayor Kevin Potter, the law director Matthew Lalo, and six out of seven council members. We'll get to that a little bit later. They say that he, the suit says that they violated his rights and fired him without just cause. He wants his job back. He wants to... punish city officials, and he wants damages on top of that. So let's get to the story. So Nasi was fired back in August of 2021 after a three-month investigation into allegations that he was uh, habitually drunk on the job, that he would disappear on personal business for several hours while he was on duty, also accused of verbally abusing his employees using vulgar gestures and language and racist language. So in the suit, Nasi accuses the mayor of being an alcoholic. And Nasi during this time, he did agree to enter rehab, which he did last April as an inpatient at Lutheran Hospital for six weeks. During his stay, the law director, Lalo, tried to convince him to resign, and he refused, and then he got fired. So there were six of seven council people who voted to fire him. The one who didn't, Kelly Wolf was accused of having an affair with Chief Nasi. She was the <laughs> only no vote on his firing, and she is not named in the lawsuit either.
0: I, it, this is just... Th- when you have small government like this, you get into this, uh, you know, Peyton Place kind of gossipy stuff. It is interesting, though, if he went into rehab and basically said, I have a, a, a health condition, I'm an alcoholic, and was getting treatment, that they would fire him... In the middle of that, that 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 you would have thought that might be uh, a factor that they'd say, "Well, he's getting treatment for it. Let's see how it goes." But they didn't. Right when he didn't quit, they just kicked. That is out.
1: correct. Yes, and so and and like I said, when he was you know in treatment, they were trying to convince him to resign, and he refused. So yeah, that looks a little bit like kicking somebody while they're down.
0: Well, and there are employment laws. Uh, It'll be interesting. The other thing is, you don't know if he did everything that they said he did. It sounds like this is a major civil war in this town. And so they're lodging all the complaints. It's like any kind of divorce where the, the allegations are always pretty outsized to what the facts are so it'll be interesting to watch this one go through the courts because he wants his job back and he wants money right
1: yes he wants damages they are not uh, they are not specified at this time but he also wants city officials to be punished i mean the lawsuit made that clear so yeah he doesn't just want money he wants revenge and i do want to go ahead go ahead
0: the depositions in this will be fascinating because they'll get into the affair. They'll get into all of the abusive stuff that that is alleged.
1: And just this little tidbit: Kelly Wolf, the uh, the alleged affair woman, she resigned from council the day before a re- an election to recall here. So there's another twist in that story.
0: Okay, it's today in Ohio. Ohioans love their parks, and one of the state parks has what could be a terrific new feature. Which park, Laura, and what's the feature?
2: Hocking Hills, and it has a new lodge. It's a resort, really. The pool looks absolutely divine. An eighty-one year old, eighty-one year old, eighty-one room hotel at Hocking Hills State Park. It's set among some of the most spectacular scenery in the state. There are waterfalls, caves, intricate rock formations all nearby. And this is the first um, new park to be, or sorry, new lodge to be built in a park since. Mommy bay state park and toledo opened in 1991 now there is the one in geneva on the lake that's owned by ashtabula county so this is the first one that's been directly from the state and it, it looks pretty amazing and this is the most yeah. popular state park in ohio so you know it's going to be full
0: well and that story was i think it was the most popular story yes. on their site uh, yes, people it was- people love parks here
2: well, and I think Hawking Hills is this destination. It's in the central area of Ohio. So it's kind of in the middle of everyone. And it, it's kind of, I mean, I've only been there once. I went zip lining in it and it was very cool, but it, it is the most popular state park in Ohio. So you know that lots of people want to go there already. And now you look at this with these new guest rooms, two swimming pools, um, a restaurant called Rock House that features a Cleveland native chef named Mapp. Matt Rapazzelli, who is apparently pretty well known, a three story main lobby with dramatic views of the parkland. So even though it's opening in, you know, in November in what is like the tail end of hiking season, I guess, I bet you it's going to be full year round.
0: Yeah, I bet it's hard to get a room. We have a good story about it. It's on Cleveland It's today in Ohio. Let's do one more. Layla, this has been on your list for about a week. Let's catch up with the story that slipped by last week, the unionization of yet another Starbucks in greater Cleveland. How many is it now?
3: Oh, man, we're up to five in Cuyahoga County with the addition of the Starbucks in Crocker Park. Workers there voted uh, seven to two to unionize. Three stores in Cleveland unionized the West 6th Street, Starbucks in the Warehouse District, the Clifton Boulevard store near Cleveland's border with Lakewood, and the store in University Circle. The other store um, is uh, in Cleveland Heights on Mayfield Road. Uh, pr- provided that the company and union hadn't filed objections in the five days after that vote, the results would have been certified and Starbucks would be required to bargain in good faith with that new unit at Crocker Park. So, Starbucks announced last week that it was ready to negotiate, sending letters to more than 200 stores, according to reporting from CNBC. No stores have actually negotiated a contract despite the first union vote that was held at at a Buffalo, New York store in December 2021. But as of Thursday morning, so that would be last Thursday morning, 243 Starbucks have voted to unionize across the country.
0: That's the challenge, is once they vote to unionize, negotiating the contract and that's where employers can try to drag their feet. But you, you say not a single one has a contract. That's what they yet?
3: that's what's reported. Yeah, wow. not yet. So um, Wow.
0: At some point that that could lead to legal action if they just don't get there. Interesting that we've got five. It's today in Ohio. That does it for Thursday. Thank you, Layla, Lisa, and Laura. Thanks for listening. We'll be back Friday to wrap up the week.